1991, four-year-old Michael Dunahy vanished in broad daylight from a playground in Victoria, BC. Over three decades later, his parents are still left wondering if they'll ever learn the truth about what happened to their little boy. I'm Chelsea May, and this is Exhibit May. Good evening. It's every parent's nightmare to look away for just a second and find that your young son or daughter has disappeared. A couple in Victoria, British Columbia is now living that nightmare. On a cool and cloudy morning on March 24, 1991 in Victoria, British Columbia, it began as a very ordinary Sunday for Michael Dunahy and his family. That morning, four-year-old Michael woke up, put on his favorite Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle shirt, had his favorite breakfast, and quickly went off to play with his friend just out back within the complex where they lived. An hour later, his mother Crystal called him to come home so they could get ready to head to the field where she had a flag football practice at 1pm. After eating lunch, she and her husband Bruce loaded everything into the car, including Michael and his six-month-old sister Caitlin. The family arrived at the parking lot of Blanchard Elementary School around 12.36 p.m. and started to unload their vehicle. Crystal got the gear bag, Bruce got the stroller out, and immediately Michael wanted to play with the other kids at the playground. This little wooden jungle gym with swings and slides was only meters away and within eyesight from the field where Crystal's teammates were gathering. So despite having a gut feeling that something wasn't quite right, she allowed him to walk over to the playground alone, but made him promise that he had to stay there and wait for daddy to come. Michael nodded and ran off to play as Crystal tied her cleats in preparation for the game while Bruce stood meters away, checking the score of a previous game. Only a few minutes later, perhaps even seconds, their lives would change forever. When Bruce got to the playground, Michael had vanished in broad daylight and was nowhere to be seen. He was heading to the playground. I was pushing the stroller with her daughter in it over to the sidelines of the field. And then I went back to get him, you know, push him on the swing or whatever he was playing on. He wasn't there. He immediately ran back to Crystal and told her that Michael wasn't at the park and that he couldn't find him anywhere. So he had asked if he could play at the park. It was right behind our backs, like 100 yards away. So Bruce was helping me get uh, our daughter, who was six months at the time, and our equipment to the side of the field. And in the time it took for him to help me do that, to go back to the playground right behind us, Michael was not there. There was cars, there was people completely surrounded, and still no one saw anything. Things escalated quickly as players and spectators stopped what they were doing and started their extensive search. Over 50 people were scattered around the school yelling his name up and down the side streets and eventually branching out throughout the neighborhood knocking on doors. I seen a man out cutting his lawn. I told him to phone the police. The first call came in at 1.06 p.m. and within five minutes, the police arrived. Well, we uh, responded to the area of the Blanchard Elementary School. That was back on March 24th in 1991, uh, where Michael was actually last seen around 12.30 in the afternoon. Uh, So we started a very thorough investigation at that time with pretty much every resource that we had going into this. 
Everyone thought that he had just simply wandered off, but since Michael disappeared so quickly from a public place, the police promptly classified his case as an abduction rather than a missing child case. All detectives from the Victoria Police Department were called in urgently and all BC ferries leaving the island were quickly shut down. As time was ticking and the sky was getting darker, everyone began to panic. As the search expanded, helicopters began circling the area from above while more people joined in to help. Crystal hurried to a drugstore where she printed copies of a photo in her wallet of Michael while Bruce drove to the police headquarters where they set up a command station. Hundreds of tips began flooding in every hour from across British Columbia and North America and at one point became unmanageable as every tip was handwritten back in the 90s but everyone kept going as they knew the first 72 hours were extremely crucial to an abduction. Victoria detectives spent all day and night investigating known sex offenders and interviewed anyone in the area around the time of the disappearance, but couldn't find any information that could lead them to the missing boy. The next day, a 50-year-old woman named Norma confessed that she believed she observed Michael's abduction. On March 24, 1991, as she headed to work at a nearby real estate office that afternoon, she noticed a young boy running across the street from the park and a young girl chasing him. The girl chased him, dove at the young boy, grabbed him by the legs, and pulled him down hard. At the time, she thought it was just two kids playing around but felt like something was off and decided to purposely stop the stop sign to see what was going on. She then saw the girl grab the boy by the arm and marched him across in front of a car on Wark Street. Now that the girl was closer, Norma realized that the girl was not a child. It was an attractive young woman who she believed was indigenous between the ages of 25 to 30, around 5 foot 2, medium built with auburn hair and freckles. They proceeded to walk down an alley where a grungy dirty brown van with a light beige top was parked awaiting their arrival. In front of the vehicle stood a slender man believed to be in his 40s, around 6 foot 2, with a long face and curly blonde hair. The man flung the door wide open and a brown colored blanket fell partially out of the van. Norma became so highly suspicious of the odd situation that she decided to park her car and call the police. But by the time she parked her car, the brown van had vanished. So she never contacted authorities. It wasn't until the following day when she arrived at work that everyone was talking about a little boy named Michael Dunahy who had gone missing at a nearby park the day before. Instantly, her mind went to the little boy she had witnessed being dragged into the brown van, believing it could be connected. That evening, she called the police but felt like her story wasn't taken seriously. On April 2nd, 1991, Norma was hypnotized in effort to draw out details of the van but was unable to provide that information as a license plate was bent under the van. She was later questioned several times again but nothing else came from this. During that time, another witness report was provided by a 10-year-old girl who said a boy resembling Michael got into a brown van parked in an alley near the school. She described the van as an older brown model with tinted rear windows and went on by telling the police that there was a bulldog inside with a large plastic bag. This witness report was thoroughly investigated and the school-aged girl was interviewed numerous times. Still, in the end, even though several people allegedly saw a brown van, police determined that there was no credible evidence that there ever was a brown van which led to another dead end. 
Days and days went by, but there were still no signs of Michael. It had been one month when the Victoria Police Department finally decided to pour all their resources into the case and stage a reenactment of the disappearance at Blanchard Elementary School. The abduction of Michael Dunahy is a new kind of crime here, and it calls for new methods. Three parked here? For example, reconvening everyone who had a car in the school parking lot that Sunday. So that was at 12.15? And running through it all again. Who was where? Was there a vehicle here then you don't see here now? That's the lead. So far, the only solid lead the police are talking about. A dark-colored van or camper or pickup truck parked around here. Now, Michael's parents parked their car at the end of the lot over by the school. And that puts this dark-colored vehicle about halfway along the path that Michael would have had to take to get from his parents' car over to the playground. Nobody saw this vehicle arrive, and nobody saw it leave. But it disappeared, apparently, just about the time that Michael did. But nothing produced any new leads. That is, until 15 years later, in 2005, when the case sparked attention again as a call came in at a Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, also known as CBC in Saskatchewan. A man in jail whom we'll call Mr. X expressed how concerned he was because he had a friend who had just been released from jail and was told that he had key information on the Dennehy case. During a group therapy session between the inmates, Mr. X vocalized that his friend had abducted and killed Michael and knew where his remains could possibly be found. When this critical information arose, a producer who did investigative work at CBC named Paisley Woodward decided to take on the case as a journalist. Although Mr. X was serving an indefinite sentence for a series of violent sexual assaults, Paisley described him as a friendly short man with a round face and high-pitched voice. Throughout their interactions, Paisley was struck by how specific and clear his statements were regarding Michael's disappearance, which made her think he was referring to himself when he spoke about his so-called friend. The only thing Mr. X was unclear about was where Michael's remains were located. Police interviewed him one last time in 2007 and decided that Mr. X was only an attention seeker and had nothing to do with Michael's case and told him to stop contacting CBC. Mr. X then mailed Paisley a letter telling her it was all over. The story was then dropped, leaving Paisley with no option but to archive all her files even though she believed that Mr. X could hold the key to what happened to Michael all these years. Two more years dragged by without any solid leads, until 2009 when Milwaukee police came out with a statement that said a 62-year-old man named Vernon Seats had confessed to a psychiatrist that he had killed one boy in 1959 and knew of another child murder. He also revealed that he was a pedophile and claimed that he didn't act on his fantasies. Victoria Fetter was a psychiatrist in Milwaukee and worked out of a one-room office and acted like her own secretary. Seats was known to be her most challenging patient, who she described as a psychopath and was extremely frightening, to the point where Fetter had to tell him that she no longer could treat him. She wondered whether he had an overheated imagination or if the stories he told her were true, as he had a clean police record on file. Milwaukee police later raided Seat's home and made some alarming discoveries in his basement. Stacks of child pornography, files of unsolved missing children's cases in the U.S. from the late 1980s to 1990s, drawings of nude boys in bondage, books on cannibalism, and blonde human hair and a bone. 
Among all this was a missing person poster of Michael Dunahy and a copy of a map titled Millstream Park. Ironically, northwest of Victoria, BC was a road named Millstream that led to several remote parks. Local investigators attempted to trace Seats' movements in the late 1980s and early 90s to determine whether he traveled to Canada, specifically BC, when Michael went missing. Though they thought there was some connection between Seats and Michael's case, nothing more came of this. He was later found dead in his home from natural causes, so they were never able to question him about Michael's disappearance and without a body, there was nothing else to go off of. The Victoria Police Department has released a new age-enhanced forensic sketch, what Dunahy might look like at the age of 34. There is a young man who's living somewhere in Surrey right now who reportedly has been posting online uh, saying that he often gets told he looks a lot like Michael Dunahy. Uh, Victoria Police received a tip about this and will now be uh, collecting a DNA sample from this man who has consented to have this done. And he does bear a striking resemblance to an age-enhanced image of Michael Dunahy. One tip led to a family in Chase where the community was certain Michael was living. Throughout the years, several men came forward matching age-enhanced sketches of Michael Dunahy and underwent DNA testing, but sadly, none were a match. 2023 marks the 32nd anniversary of Michael's disappearance, and to this day, tips continue to come in from the public with over 11,000 tips received by police. Michael's disappearance spawned one of the most extensive police investigations in Canadian history, even appearing on Oprah and America's Most Wanted. Then there is the simply loathsome, like the man who called the Dunahy house five times. We will not broadcast his voice caught on the Dunahy answering machine because the police are still considering charges. But this is what he said. Yes, we do. He's been murdered. Pardon me? We murdered him. A sacrifice to the devil. Who are you? We murdered him. You're not going to get Michael back. Who are you? Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna. You can't have Michael back. We murdered him. Despite many tips and a $100,000 reward, the police still don't have any solid leads in this case. Michael's case remains open with officers still committed to continuing the investigation. Uh, the investigation grew into probably one of the largest police investigations in Canadian history and still to this day remains an active investigation here with Vic PD. Now he was four years old at the time and uh, we've been looking to solve this disappearance ever since it happened. Hopefully we get that tip that will lead us to discover exactly what was the cause of the disappearance of Michael. Go for a walk and I'm trying to find myself looking back to forget Michael but you know he's not there. Or if I'm out at baseball or whatever and you you see all the kids playing well. Michael would be over there playing too. It's, it's, it's hard. There's so much in our life that we still do that Michael would be involved in. I feel like beyond the father, this is my family. And, you know, there's nothing I can do to get my son back, like actually physically do. That's going to be one of the worst feelings anybody could have, not being able to protect your family. Everybody else's lives might go on, but ours aren't. Ours aren't. We're not going to stop until we find him. And I mean that. No way I'm giving up my son. He's the first and only son I'm ever going to have. And I want him back. I, I just want the person with the right information to come forward and give it to the police. Let them do their job. Let them find our son for us. 
Nobody knows if he ever made it to the park that day, but someone somewhere must know something and the police and Michael's family remain hopeful that one day a tip will come in that will provide them with the answer they've been longing for. At the time of his disappearance, Michael was standing three feet tall, weighing about 51 pounds and had bright blonde hair, blue eyes and freckles. He was last seen wearing a blue hooded jacket with red lining and red cuffs, a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles t-shirt, multicolored rugby pants, and blue sneakers. If you have any information on this case, please contact Saanich Police Tip Line at 1-888-980-1919 or Crime Stoppers Anonymous at 1-800-222-8477. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and follow me on Instagram at Exhibit May Podcast.